Thanks, Sarah. And um, stay there, friends, in chapter 34. Thanks for praying for us too, Sarah. It is um, easy to read a passage like that and to be shocked and sad and angry and confused and to wonder, as Sarah has prayed for us, where is the goodness of God and His Word in a passage like that? Uh, You can look at the text of this chapter and then you look at the title on the screen, the God of all faithfulness, and you look back at the text and you look back at the screen. Where is the God of all faithfulness in the midst of unspeakable evil, in the midst of scenes of utter depravity, like genocide and sexual violence? God is conspicuous by his absence in this chapter. He is not mentioned. He is not called upon. He is not invoked. He is not commanding anything. He is not commending anything. He is not audibly speaking. And so his promised presence with his people can be difficult to locate. What does such a chapter do for us in the context of the unfolding story of God's uh, promises for his people? Why is it here? And what does it do for us? Well, we're going to look at the people who are mentioned in this chapter and see if that might help us find some answers to those questions. And so the first person that we meet in this chapter mentioned by name, we met back in chapter 30, verse 21, as the only daughter of Jacob mentioned uh, as his children were born. Dinah, look at verse 1, where Dinah the daughter of, that Leah had born to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the land. Dinah is the daughter of Jacob born to the unloved Leah, remember. Uh, she is wandering on her own, and I wonder if that suggests perhaps that like her mother, Dinah was ignored and unloved and maybe neglected by her father as well. And her exploration of the land is significant Because if you remember where we left off last week, there was a peaceful homecoming for Jacob to the promised land where he was reconciled to his brother Esau and things looked very promising. But we also read last week that as they arrived, this family of promise back in the promised land of Canaan, they didn't go the extra 24 hours to the place that God had commanded them to go. Jacob stopped short. He didn't go up to Bethel where he was meant to go, he stopped short to buy some better grazing land near the city of Shechem. It's a devastating piece of disobedience that places his daughter Dinah in harm's way. And through no fault of her own, she is taken, she is raped, and she's held captive for the purpose of what's called abductive marriage. Uh, a practice that was common in the ancient world and is still practiced today in many parts of the world where women and girls are abducted and held while an arranged marriage is negotiated. And while there isn't much explanation or much dwelling on the brutal facts of this rape and abduction... The narrator leaves us in 
with uh, absolute clarity in verse 6 that this is something that should not be done. This is an outrageous thing. There is absolute wickedness taking place in this scene. You know how sometimes the Bible can feel like a million miles away, a completely different world, and bridging it to our world can feel like you've got to take a whole bunch of steps? Well, make no mistake, the brutal rape of this young woman is just as offensive to that culture as it is to our culture. And it should feel very close to the world that we live in. A world where sexual violence is all too common and all too brutal. And while no one I can think of would not say it's an outrageous thing, while everyone would agree that this is something that should not be done and yet it continues to be done. Because of the wickedness of human hearts and the total depravity of human nature. Can I repeat to you what I said in my email this week? Because I know that for some of you in this room, scenes like this can bring up for you your own experience of trauma or abuse, or the second-hand trauma and abuse because of what's happened to friends or loved ones. And we want to be the kind of church where you can speak up about that, where you can share that and know that you'll be heard and you'll be listened to and care will be provided. So please don't carry that sort of thing alone. No one should have to do that. Speak to a trusted friend and ask them if you can debrief with them. Uh, Talk to me or Jocelyn. We will listen and we will pray and we will seek to provide whatever care and support we can. And be utterly assured that even as the Bible describes scenes of such evil and wickedness, it is never in any way suggesting that that's okay or that that is good, or that is acceptable, but is simply being real and honest about the world that we live in that is in desperate need of a righteous judge and a gracious saviour to free us from the evil and the wickedness that is out there and that is in here and to deal with all of the injustice that people experience at the hands of wicked people. This is an outrageous thing that should not be done. That scene, if anything, should remind us once again that as far as our culture has progressed in technology and advances in education and scientific discovery, we have not advanced beyond the reality of sinful and wicked hearts that continue to invent and perpetrate unspeakable acts of evil on other people.
this state, the statement of verse 6 that this is something that should not be done is a reminder once again of our worlds and our need of that righteous judge and that gracious saviour who can deliver us from evil and lead us into the light of life. And so we sit shocked like Diana's brothers. We sit shocked and saddened and confused, but maybe not surprised. Not surprised, partly because we are readers of the book of Genesis. And sadly, this is not dissimilar to two events that we've seen before. Think about Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. Think about Abraham handing his wife Sarah over to Pharaoh because of fear for his own life. Think about the horrors of Sodom and Gomorrah and the desire for gang rape. Think about drunken Lot, whose own daughters take advantage of him. Think about Jacob deceiving and being deceived. We're shocked, but hardly surprised. Because the world of the book of Genesis is evil. It is depraved and wicked. We're shocked, but we're not surprised. Because that is our world that is depraved and wicked and full of all kinds of evil. Our culture and our community is plagued by sexual violence and depravity. Abductive marriage still happens all too commonly in our world. Women and girls taken and held against their will until marriages are arranged. And we can stand pointing the finger and in judgment over those sorts of cultures, can't we? Thinking, aren't we so much more civilised than that? Haven't we progressed far enough to not have abductive marriage in our world anymore? Do you know how long it took me to find four examples of sexual violence in our community this week? About 10 seconds. Literally just had to open up the ABC homepage. That's literally all I did. Boom, boom, boom. You've got the case of the man accused of assaulting Brittany Higgins in the cultured and educated halls of Parliament. New charges against Harvey Weinstein in the glamour world of Hollywood. A prison officer charged with abusing women, sexually assaulting inmates in a women's prison abusing his power over marginalised and vulnerable women. And it's not just out there, is it? Because to our shame, the church has not been the place it ought to be, where there's been too much abuse and too much failure to properly deal with perpetrators and properly care for victims... I think it was comedian Ben Elton some decades ago who said, I believe that this world is fundamentally good apart from all the evidence to the contrary. We live in a wicked and depraved world. It's not hard to see that. 
We're shocked, but we're not surprised. And we're reminded that we need a righteous judge and a gracious saviour. And if anything, scenes like this in the Bible just point us further to the Lord Jesus, the only one who can lead us, who can deliver us from evil and lead us into the light of life. As Jocelyn said, about 20 of us met yesterday um, for some training and some encouragement. There was about 20 of us leaders in Bible teaching ministries across our church. And uh, for our whole time yesterday, this picture was up on the big TV in the office. Uh, It's entitled Forgiveness. My parents have this picture framed in their lounge room as a reminder that they and our world need a righteous judge and a gracious saviour. And we have him in the Lord Jesus. This scene is taken from John chapter 8 where the self-righteous religious leaders are wanting to trap Jesus and throw rocks at the head of this woman who was caught in adultery. And Jesus says to them, well, the first person to throw the rock needs to be the one who is sinlessly perfect. And even they, the self-righteous elites, weren't willing to claim sinless perfection before Jesus. And one by one, they shrink away. And Jesus reaches down into the mess and to the dirt. Jesus reaches down into the guilt and the shame. And he extends that hand of forgiveness that is full of grace and truth that is the embodiment of compassion and forgiveness and non-judgmental care. And he calls this woman into a new life, a changed life, a fresh start following him. Where is God in the mess? The wickedness, the depravity of our world? Well, next week, Jacob acknowledges that God is with him, has been with him all along. But in Jesus, we see with crystal clarity, don't we, that God doesn't ignore and he doesn't pretend and he doesn't excuse or paper over the mess and the depravity, the evil and the injustice, but he enters into it, that he takes on the frailness of our human flesh and and steps into the suffering of our human experience in order that he might bear the burdens that have been hoisted upon us through the sinful actions of others and that the burdens that have been hoisted upon us by the sinful actions of our own hearts. That we might cast all of those burdens of our guilt and shame of our evil and depravity and the evil and depravity on this, of this world, that we might cast all of them upon the faithful shoulders of the righteous judge and the gracious saviour as he carries them up the hill to the cross of Calvary. Family. Jacob is very absent as well in this chapter. 
as he hears about the abduction and rape of his daughter, what does it say that he did? Nothing. And it seems that that's simply out of fear and shame rather than out of a considered response. He seems dangerously disengaged from his wider family. But Dinah's brothers, Simeon and Levi, they will not have it. They dishonour God by using his holy sign of circumcision as a deceptive means to attack this city and these people. They convince the men of the city to be circumcised so that they might be weakened and vulnerable. And then we move simply from sexual violence to genocide. It's cheery, isn't it? Pick it up with me at verse 25. Three days later, while all of them were still in pain, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting city, killing every male. They put Hamor and his son Shechem to the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and left. The sons of Jacob came upon the dead bodies and looted the city where their sister had been defiled. They seized their flocks and herds and donkeys and everything else of theirs in the city and out in the fields. They carried off all their wealth and all their women and children, taking as plunder everything in the houses. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me obnoxious to the Canaanites and Perizzites. Literally, you have made me stink to the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the people living in this land. We are few in number And if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. But they replied, should he have treated our sister like a prostitute? It's a fair question, right? It's an understandable question. Should they have treated our sister like a prostitute? No. And so what would you have us do, Jacob? What is the proportionate response in the face of sexual violence and such depravity and wickedness. The assault on their sister leads to the genocide of the city, a totally inappropriate response. But the question is, what is the appropriate response? If you find that you're quickly answering that question, you're doing better than me. How do you put value on the dignity and worth of a young woman? How do you bring about justice in that situation? What does doing right and fair look like? Well, as is so often the case when we take justice into our own hands and seek to enact what we say is good and right, it's always tainted by our own sin and our own brokenness. And for Simeon and Levi, though their anger is understandable, and while their seeking her honour is admirable, what they demonstrate is, demonstrate is unbridled anger and violence. 
and it's the plunder of the city, the taking of wealth and possessions that is seeking to balance the the honour of their family. So how much treasure should they plunder for the honour of their sister? What is a human life worth? Again, if you answer that question too quickly, you're doing better than me. I wonder if you've seen the 2020 movie Worth with Michael Keaton. It's a true story about a lawyer in the, in the wake of the September 11 terrorist attacks who has to try and work out how much compensation families should get. How do you put a figure on that? How do you work it out? How do you add it up? Who gets what? More mess, more damage, more questions with elusive answers to do with justice and what is righteous. That should again and again remind us that we need a righteous judge. But because the wickedness and depravity is not just out there, it's in here too, we also need a gracious saviour. So when the righteous judge fully and finally deals with evil and depravity once and for all time, there might still be the hope of eternal life for those who would trust in him as well. It's totally understandable to ask the question, where is God and why does he allow such evil and depravity? such wickedness to unfold in his world. But can I tell you, seeking to answer questions of morality untethered from the foundation of God's holy and righteous character and his action in and for the world in the person of the Lord Jesus, that is not going to make your answers any clearer. Trying to answer questions of morality without God and his son, the Lord Jesus... It's just going to lead to more mess and more damage and more questions with even more elusive answers. But passages like this and the reality of wickedness and injustice and evil in our world and in our hearts remind us in the end that as we lament it, we can also bring it to the righteous judge and the gracious saviour who is utterly faithful, who is totally trustworthy, who judges with absolute equity and saves with infinite grace. In the end, Dinah is brought back to her family, but as is so often the case, it doesn't feel in the end like justice has been served or guilt has been removed or shame has been dealt with. It feels like so many days in our world, it feels confusing and messy. It feels like we're damaged and we're limping along because we are. Grasping for justice, looking for clarity, hoping for real life and a certain future.
Jacob will reflect later at the end of his life that the actions of Dinah's brothers, Simeon and Levi and the eldest Reuben, well, their actions are the reasons why they won't carry on the promised blessing and why perhaps they have the capacity to sell their brother Joseph into slavery. More of that to come. But in the midst of this depravity and wickedness, we're reminded as we follow the thread through the book of Genesis that through Judah and the youngest brother Joseph, God's saving purposes will continue to expand. And next week we're reminded in chapter 35 that the God of all faithfulness in the midst of mess and wickedness doesn't leave us alone. He hears, he acts, he walks alongside and in the Lord Jesus he provides the righteous judge and the gracious salvation that our world and our lives so desperately need. Next Easter we're going to reflect on Revelation chapter 7 together. At the very end of the Bible, that picture of heaven... Where we, where we read that the spiritual descendants of Simeon and Levi will be in the eternal kingdom of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That through faith in Jesus, the spiritual descendants of Simeon and Levi get to be counted in the innumerable crowd from every tribe and nation and language who are gathered to Jesus in the joy of his kingdom forever. And so let's finish tonight lamenting the mess and feeling the burden of the wickedness and depravity of our world and our hearts but let's look to the victory of the righteous judge and the gracious saviour as we read Revelation 7 together I'll read follow along on the screen After this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne, around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? Come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation, the mess. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Free from every stain, from every sin, from all guilt and shame, from every burden and every failure, washed clean in the righteousness of Christ and his atoning blood shed on the cross. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple 
and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them nor any scorching heat for the lamb at the centre of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. We're shocked, but we're not surprised at the depravity and wickedness of our world and our hearts. We rejoice in hope because we have a righteous judge and a gracious saviour who will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that the truth of your word, its goodness, its perfection, would refresh our souls even as we're reminded of the evil and injustice, the wickedness and depravity of our world and our hearts, please help us not to stand in self-righteous judgment on others, but to take our burdens and the burden of this world to the cross of Jesus that we, the weary and burdened, might find rest for our souls. And we pray you would help us to keep looking to him as the righteous judge who will deliver us from evil and the gracious saviour who will lead us in the light of life. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.